being able to come to Him in prayer, as we talk about that this morning um, in Matthew 6. And don't get nervous and don't worry, but we're going to start over here this morning briefly. And no, I don't play as well as Amy. Or at all, for that matter. (laughs) But when I was little, and I I don't really remember if it was elementary school or maybe early middle school. I don't remember if it was at a friend's house or relative's house, but someone was playing the piano and there's this thought of, I want to do that. I want to learn how to play the piano. I don't know what the question was, but somewhere along the line, someone, either a cousin or a friend said, well, I can teach you. And so in in very short order, I learned this song. What is that? You don't know? A classic? What is that? I drop my dolly in the dirt. I asked my dolly if it hurt, but all she said was wah, 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 wah. Y'all don't know I dropped my dolly in the dirt? The problem is, I learned that and I can play that without looking and I can speed up and slow down and it never translated into me being able to play anything else. I never learned Mary Had a Little Lamb and it certainly didn't get me to Beethoven or Rachmaninoff or Debussy, ever. Never happened. Now, I, I piddled around a little bit and learned some other things that I could do that exact same pattern down here. And it sounds really different. And, and I can do that same pattern down here. But I run out of room and it sounds kind of menacing. But maybe the dolly feels that way. And I figured out that if, if you do it backwards, it also sounds like a neat little tune. But maybe from a different country. why it does that. I have no clue. See, because when, when they taught me to play the piano, I just learned a pattern. I don't even know what those notes are. I have no clue what those notes are. I don't know why they make the sound they make. And at that time, I didn't even know why when I moved to the left and I could play, I dropped my dolly one, two, three, four, five, six different tones. I didn't even know why that was. I had no clue. And then there's these things down here, and if I do this, it's like it does something different, but I don't know why you'd want to do that. I don't even know why this is pleasing and this is not. But it doesn't sound right to me. The reason that I never got beyond I dropped my dollies because I asked the wrong person. 
Now, if I'd have asked Amy, will you teach me how to play the piano? She would have, she might have taught me I dropped my dolly in the dirt. I don't know if that's in her repertoire for beginning piano players. But what she would have done is she would have taught me a whole lot more about, number one, this instrument, about all those little circles and lines that you see when on, in hymn books and what those mean and why there are white keys and black keys and why some keys sound better than others and why some don't. In a sense, she would have taught me not only what to do, but why and how. There would have been a theory behind music so that I just don't have to memorize a bunch of patterns because I can do that and so can most of you, right? I could teach you in very short order how to play I Drop My Dolly in the Dirt if you're not musically inclined at all. But if you have someone who's a real teacher, they can teach you how and why those things happen and get you from just rote memory to where you can begin to open up a piece of music and go, I could play that. Or even, I can begin to write my own music. That's what teachers do. I just asked a friend how to play the piano, and and friends sometimes just give you things like that. But a teacher not only can give you that, but can give you an understanding to help you move beyond that. A theory, a foundation for why you would even do something like that. And we have a teacher in Jesus who in Matthew 6 is teaching his disciples about prayer. And he does teach them a pattern. He teaches them some words that they can use and that it seems the church has used for 2,000 years. A passage that you're all familiar with in Matthew 6. But because Jesus is a master teacher, he's doing just more than, here are some words you can use to pray. If we read carefully, if we think carefully, what he's also doing is giving us a theory and a foundation for the why and the how of prayer so that we don't just have to use those particular words. Nothing wrong with using those words. It's like there's nothing wrong with me playing I Drop My Dolly in the Dirt. But Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or the crowd that he's teaching with just that. He's teaching them more than that. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. We're going to read through the end of 15, but we're just going to focus this morning really on just verse 9. I know I said an email verse 9 and 10, but um, there's enough in verse 9 for us to chew on this morning uh, and for the week to come that we'll just we'll focus there. So beginning in chapter 6 in verse 5, Jesus says these words, When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray, therefore, in this way, our Father who is in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Father, we thank You for this morning. Pray that Your Spirit would work in our lives, that You'd open our ears to hear well, our hearts to understand, and our wills to respond. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He begins in verse 9, Pray therefore in this way. And whenever you see a therefore, and we say that a lot, see what it's there for, but you really do need to go back because that therefore is a conclusion. Because of what I've just said, this is true. This is the way things should be. And what has he just said? Well, he's given them two negative examples, two ways not to pray. And then beginning in verse 9, he's going to tell us then how we should pray. And it's not just the words. Again, he's a master teacher. There's an underlying theory that's going on. There's something that these people are doing wrong that he's trying to correct. So let's go back and see what they're doing incorrectly. The first example in verse 5 is these people that are, that are standing out in public and, and religious leaders who are praying so that they may be seen by men. Their purpose, their goal, their focus is themselves. I want you, I need you to notice me. Their, their foundation, their philosophy is, I do what I do so others will notice me. Now what Jesus is not doing, He's not speaking against public prayer. Jesus prayed in public. But what He's doing is He's doing in all the Sermon of the Mount, He's talking about the heart. These public acts that we all do all the time, what's the reason that you do them? And this first thing that they're doing is, I'm praying so that other people will notice me, will notice that I'm spiritual. I'm praying not that the focus would be on God, but that the focus would be on me. What's interesting is the leaders probably should have been praying in public to teach people how to relate to God. And yet their sole purpose, their sole motivation is, I want you to think that I'm spiritual. I want you to think that I've got it all together. What we find in this prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples is the purpose of prayer in in one sense is a reminder that we don't have it all together. I do what I do so that others will notice me. Is that, is that how you pray and why you pray? And Jesus says, don't pray that way. The second group does what they do so that God will notice them. It says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Whatever God or gods the pagans were praying to, they felt like I have to be a certain way or say a certain thing or use certain words 
or like the little kid that just wants his mother's attention, mom, mom, mommy, mom, mom, and eventually, right, the mom turns, right? If I repeat it over and over again, surely God or the gods will hear me. And again, the focus is on self. What do I have to do to get God's attention? The first group, what do I have to do to get man's attention? The second group, what do I have to do to get God's attention? And in both of these, those are specific things they were doing wrong, but there's an underlying current of prayer is all about the person. And Jesus says, don't do that. If prayer is all about you, you're missing the point. Focus is on self. The problem is, there's no magical formula. There's nothing that ultimately is ever going to work to get people to notice you long term. And there's no magical formula to get God to notice you at all. We come to God through Jesus Christ Alone. You have to remember that. We come to God through Jesus Christ alone. And in Jesus Christ, we're noticed by the only one that really matters. We come to God through Jesus Christ alone. And in Jesus Christ, we're noticed by the only one that really matters. And if that's not our foundation in prayer then we're missing something. And so Jesus then says in verse 9, pray then in this way. And what he does is he first of all talks about God's character. The focus is entirely upon who God is. Completely. It's not about you. It's not about anybody else. The focus as Jesus is teaching us about prayer, is God's character. And the first truth that we need to apprehend, to grab, to understand, to hold on to, to remember, is God is close enough to relate to, and He's big enough to trust in. He is close enough to relate to, and He's big enough to trust in. He begins, Our Father, a term of endearment, a term of relation. He wants the people he's talking to, to to know that the one that you're praying to is like a father. And for some of us, there's a disconnect there. Because we think of father and we have negative connotations. We have bad thoughts. What I want to submit to you is that Everybody in this room, regardless of who you are or how wonderful your father was, if you're simply looking at the way he was, you don't have a complete picture of what Jesus is talking about. So even those of us who had good fathers, and the good news for those of us who had bad fathers, There's an example that Jesus gives that allows us to understand that there is one who is 
that we should be rightly related to and that is this perfect example, this perfect Father. So what, what does that look like? When he says, Father, what we think about, what we should think about all the times in Scripture where God or one of the apostles or Jesus himself talked about what dads should be like. One of which we read earlier in Deuteronomy. These things that I command you today should be in your heart, he says. And that you should diligently teach them to your children. Kind of two ideas. Fathers should have, perfect fathers should have, in one sense, the law of God written on their heart, which means their character should match up with their words. And there's not a dad in here who does that perfectly. And yet, there is one who is always consistent with the way he speaks and the way he acts. And that's why Moses told the people, we want you to be this way. Because remember, you're imaging God. You're representing God to the world. And so this this perfect example of a father is one who internally is consistent with the way he is externally. The laws are written on his heart. And he uses his words to bring his children up closer to God, to know him better, to love him better. Same thing's true in the New Testament. We're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment. Paul says the exact same thing, just in different wording. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, talking to Thessalonians, you, you've observed this to be true. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. So our character was correct. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. We used our words and our behavior just like a father would his children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Just two examples, but the scriptures are replete with places where those in positions of authority, fathers and families, that their actions and their words should line up to bring people closer to God. And our Father does that. He's given us His Word. He speaks to us through this to draw us closer to God. And through His actions, His sacrificial actions, by giving His Son, has shown us what it means to love. And so when Jesus says, pray this way, our Father, He's speaking about one who is close enough that we can relate to, one who has our best interest at heart, one who loves us, one who's willing to sacrifice for us. But He's also big enough to trust in. Who is in the heavens, the text says. In one sense, he's a father, but in another sense, he is above and beyond and so far removed from us and so different from us. 
Because the problem with our earthly fathers is every single one of them is limited in their ability and is limited in their power. As much as we might want to love and protect and care for and teach and nourish and admonish, we fail. And we're unable to solve all the problems of life. And Jesus says we have one who is both Father and who is in the heavens. He is above us and beyond us. He's the one that sustains creation. And if He can do that, He has the ability to care for us. And so this this beginning, the focus was for these other people on myself as I pray. And Jesus not only gives us proper words, this word of closeness and this word of otherness of power, but a reminder, when you pray, where is your focus? Is it on yourself or is it on God? So we begin by addressing Him as He is. He's the one that's close enough to relate to and big enough to trust in. Because if it's really up to me to get His attention, that's at times maddening and at times frustrating. And all the time there's this this element of doubt that comes in. Am I really good enough? Do I really have the right words? Do I really have the right things to say? Is He even interested? Because of what Christ did on the cross, not only is He interested, but He's already given us all that He can give us. So, we have, as the writer of Hebrews says, access into His presence. But that's not the only thing because we, we, could, we get those two ideas and we get them in our mind and we go, okay, I can relate to him. He's close enough and he's, he's really powerful. He can do what I want. So he's sort of like this cosmic Santa Claus, right? And get up in his lap and ask him what I want and I'll get it, right? And Jesus doesn't want us to get the wrong impression. So he adds a third point at the end of verse 9 that He's holy enough to demand our reverence. He says, Hallowed be your name. That word hallowed can refer to an object that's been set aside for a particular use, usually a spiritual use. Let me give you an example of what we're not talking about. This is the table that we use for the Lord's Supper. And some people might think, well, this is sort of special. But it's not hallowed. It's not been consecrated. Because sometimes I'll have a bulletin and I'll set it here. I use it for something else besides the Lord's Supper. I've set my Bible here. Sometimes when we need the whole stage, we we move that table and put it back there and set the offering box on it, the Kleenex box, and the pens and the paper. As special as you think this table is or is not, this table is not consecrated because we use it for more than one thing. The idea of hallowed or consecrated for an object is it's only used for one thing. Usually that's a spiritual thing, like the altar in Exodus 29. 
You only use it for offering sacrifices to God. You would never lay your Bible on it, however special you think a Bible might be. And you certainly wouldn't put pens and paper on it, or even a bulletin, or even lean up against it as you're making a point. This is not consecrated. And Jesus says that God's name should be. It's also used for people in the Bible, individuals and His church collectively, as something that God Himself has set apart or sanctified for His use. Sometimes that word is translated sanctified. Ultimately, it's something that's set apart as what we might say holy. And so there's two ideas that are going on here. One, a literal idea. God's name should be set apart and used only for one purpose. Ultimately, to bring Him honor and glory. The third commandment, don't take God's name in vain. And so a very practical application of this is, do you use God's name for that, for other than that which it was intended? As an address in prayer and praise, teach about his character. Is it, do you use it lightly? Do you use it either just not thinking very clearly about what you're talking about or even on the other end, the worst part, as, as a curse? So literally, I think Jesus is referring in one sense back to the third commandment. But also, metaphorically, the word name literally stands for, especially in Near Eastern thought, stands for someone's being, their character. It's, it's the very nature of their personality. And so... When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, consecrated, set aside, holy, sanctified, be your character, be your personality, be your presence. And so again, the focus is prayer about me, or is it about how I display God to the world? Remember, People were praying, hoping that someone would notice them. And in one sense, Jesus is saying, when you pray, are you hoping that someone notices God? Are our prayers more about me? Or are they more about God? Are they more about my glory? Or are they more about His glory? If I am praying in public, Am I more concerned about what someone thinks of me or do my prayers bring people into God's presence? Do they remind them of who He is? And so Jesus gives us specific words to help that happen. Words like, Father, He is close enough to relate to. Phrases like, Who is in the heavens? He's big enough to depend upon. Words like, Hallowed be your name. Do we understand that, that He's holy and majestic enough that we should rever Him, that we should honor Him? And whether you use these exact words as you're praying, are you thinking about who He is? Because see, we, with everything, we tend to slide toward the ditch. 
in one side or the other. That I tend to favor one aspect of his character more than the other. We should never be so comfortable with God that we forget that he is holy and majestic and powerful and the creator of the universe. But we should also never be so fearful. And I know some of you grew up in places where there was a certain protocol. And if you didn't toe the line, God clearly didn't love you because he is so awesome and wonderful and powerful. And you've got to do the right things and say the right things or he will not love you. We don't want to fall into that ditch either where we're so scared that we forget that he's merciful and kind and gracious. And those ditches are easy to fall into because we, we like to do the same thing. And there needs to be attention in our prayer life. There needs to be attention in our prayer life of this God who is approachable and this God who is unapproachable. This God who, again, the writer of Hebrews says we can come into his presence with boldness and confidence. And this God who, when people come into his presence, fall down and say, woe is me, for I am undone. And I would submit to you that's probably close to impossible, but we need to work on that. My thought is in North America in the 21st century, we tend toward this way of the God who's my best friend. He's approachable and easy to get along with and he loves me and he would never do anything mean to me. I think we tend towards this way in America in general. Though I know some of you grew up in, in, in churches that really stress this and so you fight against this and so this certainly feels better. And I would challenge you to live in that tension and allow that tension to be part of not only your prayer life but your walk with God. It's important that we don't remove aspects of who God is as we seek to relate to Him. Finally, there's the word at the beginning of the prayer, our. Just one other reminder that it's not about me. I'm part of a bigger picture, a body of Christ. There are other people. As I pray, as I relate to God, do I realize that I do so as part of a people that are redeemed and that it really is not about me and that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that, that I need to call alongside me to pray with me. as we did for James, as we do for several other prodigals in this body. Are we aware of one another? We'll continue with this prayer as we continue to think about the fact that Jesus is teaching that prayer is not about me, but it's ultimately about God and, and who He is and what He does. We'll look at 10 through 13 together at a, a later time. But my challenge to you this week as we go out, um, think about your prayers. As you pray, think about what, what's my foundation? Am I, do I kind of pray the same way 
week after week, which is in and of itself okay. We are creatures of habit. But what's my focus? Is it on me and my wishes and my wants? Or am I really focusing my prayers on the God who is close enough to relate to, who is big enough that I can depend upon Him, and who is majestic and awesome enough that I should reverence Him? Just as you go through your week, as you do what you normally do, as you pray, would you think about what undergirds those prayers? Is it the words that you say? Is it the fact that maybe you were good the day before and so God can hear you better today? Or is it the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross that you could approach God now? That He is your focus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You and praise You that we can as a body and as individuals come into your presence. And because of what your son did, we can come into your presence holy and blameless. And that's overwhelming. Because I don't feel holy or blameless. And so I praise you and I thank you that you allow me into your presence. Help me, God, to remember who you are. You are the creator of the universe, that you sustain it, that by your power you hold all things together. The atoms that swirl around in my body that make things function, you do that. Help us not to forget that as we go through our week. Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you for making us a family through the blood of your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.